everyone, this is Sandy Bharatharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I Zoomed with Kevin Kumler, one of my former colleagues and now Chief Operating Officer at Quartet Health. Quartet is a healthcare tech company on a mission to improve the lives of people with mental health conditions. Quartet has raised nearly $150 million from investors such as Centene, GV, Echo Health Ventures, Oak HCFT, and F Prime Capital Partners. Kevin's background includes leadership roles at McKinsey, ZocDoc, and now Quartet. He has provided invaluable counsel to me through several career and personal milestones, so I hope you enjoy the journey and stories he shares on this episode. Would love to start the conversation going way back to your early years. What brought you to healthcare? And did you know that you wanted to be a healthcare businessman when you were younger? (laughs) To the extent anyone knows what they want to be when they were younger, uh, I did not end up exactly where I thought I'd be. Like most kids, I grew up thinking I'd do what my parents did. Dad was a surgeon. I used to follow him around in the hospital as he was doing rounds on the weekends. Uh, He let me use the cast saw once at an age where I was way too young to be using a cast saw. All all the stuff that went around that just seemed very cool. And I grew up around medicine. My mom was a dental hygiene instructor. My older brother's an orthopedic surgeon. So first track, I thought I'd do that. And my backup was to be an engineer like my granddad. So I think like most people, you think you'll do what your family did. When I was in college in the mid 90s, that was the time that I had to make that choice. Do I spend the next 12 plus years training for this future in healthcare? Or do I go down a different path? And my dad, the doctor was the one who said, if I were looking at healthcare today and starting today, I actually wouldn't go into healthcare. The next 30 years won't look like the last 30 years did. And he sort of saw because it was the early stages of healthcare reform that many healthcare providers were just going to be at some level cogs in a machine. And he liked both the medicine side, but also the entrepreneurial side of building out a practice. And he just didn't see the opportunity for that. So he counseled me away from it. That's how I ended up in business. I was a math and econ major at the same time. Thought for a while in the back of my head, maybe I'll go back into healthcare. And I joined McKinsey and Company straight out of college doing business consulting. Being a surgeon, being an engineer, and being in business all had in common is at their core, they're all about problem solving. And what I really liked about the business side is it's more of a team sport than an individual sport. Within business, I just kept getting drawn into healthcare problems, both because I had some experience there and it just felt much better to be solving problems that at the end of the day made people's lives better. Not that better ball bearings don't make people's lives better. I'm sure they do, but that was not something I could get super excited about. Impacting people's care, the cost of care, quality, access to care were things that I could get really excited about. Knowing you personally, I know that you're a jack of all trades when it comes to healthcare services. You've, during your time with McKinsey, worked with providers, with government organizations, you built the commercial machine at ZocDoc, and now you're the head operator at Quartet. So I'm curious, what was your biggest learning in making the leap from wearing the commercial hat to wearing the operator hat? I'd say it's not really that much of a leap. The way I'd think about it in any organization, it's got to start with how do you create value? What do you do that somebody is going to pay you for that is important? if you're building any kind of business, from the sales team all the way through back-end operations, all of that has to be integrated and, and make sense and connect. When you're running a large commercial machine, which when I was working on what we call our local business or our, our small and medium business uh, side at ZocDoc, there were hundreds of people. At that level, it's like a giant operations problem. On the flip side, when you're in operations, there are many problems that are really at some level about a sales or commercial challenge, whether it's the product you're developing or how do you recruit talent or how do you raise funds for what you're doing. So I think there is a ton of overlap across both. The nice thing is both 
in my McKinsey experience of going into companies and dabbling at the all-you-can-eat business buffet of trying different kinds of problems, and at ZocDoc and now at Quartet, being able to see the problem from multiple different people's vantage points and understanding for the person who has to focus on ratcheting up efficiency and scaling a process, I know why it's a problem for the commercial team to go out and sell a bespoke solution to every single client. And on the flip side, for the operators who are trying to make everyone into a one-size-fits-all puzzle, I understand the frustration for the commercial team and having to go out to a client and say, I hear how you're saying your situation is different than the health plan or the health system down the street, but I cannot offer any sort of flexibility for you to tailor it to your need. You know, a lot of the best businesses figure out a way to, to blend those together, marry them together. And I think that's the challenge of any leader these days trying to build one of those businesses. And I'm thankful that I've had a range of experiences. Adding on to that perspective, the fact that you've been in New York for much of your career. I know you spent some time on the West Coast at Stanford, and now your family has brought you back to the East Coast. What, in your mind, makes New York an interesting and unique landscape for health tech companies like Quartet? Yeah, New York is an interesting healthcare environment. And I've spent a good bit of time all over the country, not just in places I've lived, but places where clients were members we served. New York stands out. I think Chicago is the only one that people would argue is harder from a competitive standpoint. If you look at just the sheer number of high quality resources in a very small geography, people have lots of options. It's a very competitive market. From a technology and services innovator point of view, New York's different because there is serious access to talent, serious access to capital. And I think what else separates New York is the scale and diversity of both the people you'll be serving and the people you'll be working with. All of those things come together and I think make a really vibrant community for startups and growth companies, which is why you see so many in, in New York and make it a really fun place to work from my point of view. Many of those things make it harder, but when you succeed, it's like the Sinatra song. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. That's something that has been a lot of fun to participate in. It's also been incredible to see the explosion of health tech companies within the last four to five years in New York itself. I feel like ZocDoc was one of the OG digital health companies in New York and that kind of led to talent then moving on, starting their own thing, joining new companies, and it's kind of led to this really interesting spread. Pivoting a little bit to a really timely topic about the health tech landscape against the backdrop of coronavirus. I think the current pandemic has forced every human in the world to adjust overnight to a new reality, and a lot of headlines are posturing that this current pandemic is creating an anxiety pandemic. You know, healthcare workers who may suffer from PTSD after providing critical care, employees that are losing their jobs or adjusting to a new normal working from home, and more importantly and relevant for this conversation, people who are trying to access much needed behavioral health services who no longer can because of canceled appointments, etc. What is your take on those that maintain that the cure could be worse than the disease and we need to be mindful of that? So I, I don't know that I'll touch the cure being worse than the disease. I'll, I'll leave that to the, the medical experts. Pretty thankful that if you look at our company, our chief medical officer, not by design, just somewhat by luck, he was our first real employee. He happens to be an infectious disease specialist, which is extraordinarily helpful during a global global pandemic to have one of the, I think there's roughly 5,000 infectious disease specialists in the United States. We happen to have one who works in our company. So we created a uh, coronavirus committee, our CEO, our head of people strategy, myself, and our chief medical officer very early on and met twice, twice in person or twice by phone or video a week. And we're talking 
in constant contact every single day. Just trying to think through everything from what is the impact on our own employees? When should we be telling people to work from home? When should we be telling people not to go into physicians' offices, which is part of our model? And a lot of that, if you look at the weekly all hands we hold as part of that, many of the questions are around our own own employees' anxieties around their own healthcare situation, the flood of information out there right now, and it's hard to know what to trust, and the level of uncertainty going forward, because we are essentially living through a global trauma all at once, and one that hasn't happened before. So it is at the level of, it seems like a world war in terms of the impact, the scope, the scale, and we don't have any benchmarks to look at for that. So that's a very difficult scenario to be a human being, a parent, a spouse, an employer, an employee, a manager, a managee. Our first focus was making sure that our employees were well taken care of and had everything they needed. And then quickly the entire team pivoted to how do we make sure the patients we're caring for uh, have what they need. And so we've made a number of not drastic changes to what we were doing. There's very little that we're doing now that wasn't on our roadmap at some level, but a massive reshifting and rebalancing of what we were working on when to focus on things that we could do fully remotely. And a lot of that is around having the right set of care options available to get patients to and having a number of ways to reach those patients and get them on their journey to mental health care. Uh, that doesn't involve being face-to-face with patients or with providers. So I want to dig into that point a little more because I know Quartet works often with historically marginalized populations that may face a lot of systemic barriers to access to care, especially for behavioral health care. How has your approach changed for those populations, especially in light of, you know, you see all the articles about their health care outcomes in light of COVID-19 are drastically worse because of all these systemic barriers. So how as a company are you approaching that? Yeah, and the root causes behind some of that, I think it's still too early to know. A disparity is obvious in the data, but the why is less clear. There's been hypotheses that it's related to the differences in who is working in an essential worker role, and is that leading to more exposure? So I, I don't know that we'll know yet the why behind it, but the fact that it's happening is absolutely clear, and it's true that we are serving a lot of Medicaid populations, and even in our commercial populations, that challenges. How do we reach people where they are? And now that's no longer likely in their physician's office unless they have COVID. They're probably being encouraged not to go to the office. So we need to reach them in different ways, which means reaching them directly through online channels. It means reaching them through our payer partners, case managers. And it means making sure that there's a number of flares we can fire up that they can grab a hold of and get to care. And then ensuring that we can get them to care quickly, which is, as you know, the entire problem that ZocDoc was solving was how do you get access to healthcare? Quartet is laser focused on that problem in mental healthcare where the problem's essentially worse. If you went on to an open marketplace and tried to find a psychiatrist that accepts insurance, good luck. Quartet has had to work really deeply with our partners to make sure that we have adequate access to care so we can get people into that care. In some of the more marginalized populations and Medicaid populations, that's been underinvested in even more than in the commercial populations. But across all of those populations, I think it's just a, a fact at this stage that behavioral health care has been underinvested in for the last one to two decades. And in many ways, that's the origin story of Quartet. I, I know that a lot of behavioral health companies like Ginger extending services to employers for several months or Lyra offering you know, free therapy sessions to certain employer employee clients. It's really good to see that Quartet focused on some of these more marginalized populations is just really doubling down on people 
that need those services even more. One of the first things we did was make sure our employees had access to mental health care resources and more than we even normally would, just making sure we're walking the talk. And then our second initiative, Care for Caregivers, making sure that the primary care physicians who use our services, their staff, and even the MHPs we're working with all have access to mental health care via quartet and working with some of our partners who provide that care. They're providing it at no cost to those providers during this time, which I think is just amazing. That is really interesting. I feel like much more different differentiated than a lot of companies going straight to consumers. Like we're basically leaving behind this vacuum of providers that are seeing trauma daily with limited resources, no PPE um, on the front lines. And I feel like they are not getting much support right now. So that's incredible. I think that highlights an interesting point around all of the different business models that exist in this space you know, direct to consumer, going into employers, partnering with risk-based organizations. Do you think that coronavirus is going to change the trajectory of which of those business models is set up for success in the behavioral health landscape? I don't know that coronavirus will necessarily change it. We'll see over time. Nobody knows which model or models will work best, but I can tell you a little bit about the way we think about it. I view pure D to C as more likely to lead to point solutions and a lot of fragmentation. It's hard to do a very well-rounded direct-to-consumer model in healthcare and even more in behavioral health given issues around payment, understanding, and uh, just access to the right care and resources. I think a pure employer-based model also leads to a lot of variation because just like any enterprise sale, which healthcare is an enterprise sale to the employer, every employer wants to tweak their benefit plan or their network just a little bit, which makes it really hard to have something sustainable and scalable on the other side. So we tend to work via health plans and providers who have already built large systems and have scale and build off of what's there for any tech innovator. And there have been lots who have looked at healthcare and said, man, healthcare is broken. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to fix it. And then it takes about six to 12 months for them to get over the hubris that people in healthcare just weren't smart enough to figure out the problem and we needed tech to save it. And then once they understand that there's a whole lot of underlying reasons why they can't do it a certain way, many of them then go back to making online games and the other things that are easier to scale via pure tech because it's hard. The work that's being done by our partners, both providers and health plans, is pretty incredible stuff. And our main goal is to figure out what's the niche within there where we think we can add a ton of value and help them in ways that they couldn't do within their system because it is so large and complex. Doubling down on the complexities of being able to roll out a tech-enabled solution in behavioral health, adding on the layer of focusing on Medicaid population. So I think Medicaid is very politicized depending on which state you're working in, including North Carolina. And I know that Quartet is working with Blue Cross North Carolina. In addition to that, a lot of the managed care, managed Medicaid programs across states carve out behavioral health benefits at certain times and then not at others. And so what happens is there may be there may be a lack of clinical integration of behavioral health services into normal care plans because there isn't reimbursement integration. So how do you think, like how as a system do we do better, drive better clinical integration of these services into normal care programs? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we've seen some of those carve-outs are starting to shift. That's partially due to a lot of the moves towards value-based care 
and risk being shifted around within the, the ecosystem and people realizing when they own the full risk, it turns out unless we're in a truly futuristic sci-fi world where people's minds and their bodies can actually be separated as two separate things, they're inextricably intertwined. You need to treat them clinically in that way, which people are starting to understand. And financially, you need to think about them in a similar way. And one of the founding observations around Quartet is that if you take two people who are otherwise identical physically, they have the same chronic health conditions, but one has an underlying mental health challenge. The one with the underlying mental health challenge has physical health care costs that are three to four times higher because their underlying mental health challenge hasn't been addressed. The primary care system is so overwhelmed right now in eight-minute appointments. All the primary care physician has time to do is titrate among all the different chronic physical conditions to just take care of whatever's flaring up most. And they rarely have the time and opportunity to address the underlying mental health challenges that many of these patients are dealing with. These value-based care models that many of our partners are starting to roll out are getting people to think about it differently and start to create that payment integration that you're talking about, which I think goes a long way to getting people to reintegrate clinically uh, and operationally. Well, Kevin, thank you for being vulnerable with us and sharing that story. I know you speak for a lot of our listeners and myself who know someone in their lives very dearly that is going through something similar. And so I'm so glad that we can finally, you know, in 2020, have really open conversations from a personal and business perspective about how to solve this problem. It's been amazing since I've joined Quartet, the number of conversations I've had with people. JP Morgan this year was the first time I've been since I've been at Quartet. Everyone wanted to talk about mental health care there. And many of them wanted to talk about a personal story and something they were dealing with. A parent, a sibling, a child, the whole gamut from substance use disorder to depression, to anxiety, to PTSD, to serious mental illness. And I do think we're in a new world where people are open talking about this. And I think a lot of it's been led by the younger generation who are comfortable talking about it in ways that my parents' generation never was. It was okay if your heart failed. It was okay if your lung failed. But if your brain somehow failed you, that organ was a personal failing, not a physical failing. And I think uh, the younger generation has just uh, treated it as all part of who they are, which is, I think, the right way to view it. Shifting into how Quartet is addressing this problem specifically, for our viewers, can you offer a quick overview of what your platform is, who uses it, how the payment is structured, and kind of the North Star metric that helps you define success? Yeah, happy to. So the North Star is the patient. And getting access to mental health care is hard, and Quartet's job is to try to make that easier. So we have lots of different users and audiences who are trying to help that happen, reaching the patient where they are, making sure we connect them to the right care option for them and their condition, their need, their geography, and helping them along the way because it's already hard to get access to mental health care. And if you add stigma and other friction to it, then people just don't get the care they need. And that's generally the problem that's been happening. Our paying customers uh, are largely large health plans. Uh, some health systems as well. We partner with many more health systems and primary care physicians, and we are trying to reach those healthcare payer members. In some cases, they're already patients, but 
everywhere they're members, reach them where they are, what we call activate them, get them moving towards the op- the right healthcare option for them, get them into care, and then share information back so we're better integrating care between primary care and mental health care. Given all of the research that's been done on the impact model in Washington, that shows that integrating physical and behavioral health leads to better outcomes, lower costs, and happier patients and providers. Essentially, what Quartet is, is a platform that can connect all of those different disparate parts and help people manage patients to care together. And what makes Quartet different? And what I mean by that is, as you know, there are lots of solutions that are selling into the same parties that you are and claim to do something similar, right, of integrating all the different parties involved in care and giving them one single platform to kind of manage that care plan and reduce costs and improve outcomes. What do you think makes Quartet special? A couple of things. I do think it starts with culture and values and just being super clear that the patient is the focus, even though we did not start as a direct-to-consumer business by any means, and that is still a very small portion of what we do. The patient is still at the core. I think the second is we're not a provider of care. We have clinicians on staff. We have a chief medical officer and a chief behavioral health officer, but we ourselves are not providing any care. That gives us independence to say we don't necessarily care where the patient goes as long as it's the right care for that patient. And that independence is uh, extraordinarily valuable. We don't have a financial stake in getting them into a specific clinic or a specific digital app. I don't know that that's the case for a lot of the solutions that are out there. And then our ability to take large amounts of data from our payer partners, look in that for undertreated, untreated, and undiagnosed behavioral health problems and use that to help reach the right people and nudge them on the journey. I have not seen anyone else trying that at that scale, partially because to build all of the infrastructure to all those different user groups is hard number one, and expensive, number two. The team has now been at it for uh, six or seven years, basically building all of that out. If you tried to start that today, I think that would be much harder to do. But the group that founded the company several years ago had a a lot more foresight on this. You mentioned there you have both a chief medical officer and a chief behavioral health officer. Mm -hmm. Would love to double down on that because I think how companies think about organizing teams and leaders impacts how you think about product implications and service implications for the people you're serving. So why Mm -hmm. segment out like that? While both of them have medical training, their specialties are quite different. Our chief medical officer, as I shared earlier, is an infectious disease specialist. He is more experienced and has more training on the physical health side. Our chief behavioral health officer is a psychiatrist by training, and he has a ton of amazing clinical experience working in academic centers, and that extends into pediatrics. So having those two perspectives and being able to pull them together internally within Quartet is really important if we're ever going to be able to do the same thing externally, because at the end of the day, we're trying to pull physical health care and mental health care back together because that mind is in a body that in many ways is failing because of the issues with the mind. And if we only took the psychiatrist's point of view or the chief medical officer who is trained more in physical health's point of view, we wouldn't have the whole picture. I think that's an interesting segue to your platform. So in my experience, there are two big barriers to accessing behavioral health services. The first is getting patients to trust the referral and the service so that they are engaged, which drives the care plan. And 
Secondly, encouraging real collaboration across providers that may have different EMRs, different incentive structures, and obviously competing priorities. So how, I understand the platform brings all of those parties together, but how does it solve for those two friction points specifically? Yeah, those are both great points and questions. On the first one, on getting the patient to trust you. Not all patients uh, or people who have mental health care needs and conditions, and the, the best statistics we have are it's between one in four and one in five adults in the U.S. in any given time. And as you mentioned earlier, in this period amid the coronavirus pandemic, that's likely higher. Don't know how much higher, but likely higher. Many of those people aren't proactively seeking this kind of treatment. It's not like you just cracked a tooth and know you need to go find an emergency dentist. These challenges are often not visible in the same way. So if you're really going to get over that trust and stigma issue, it's got to start with culture and values and having the patient as the North Star and making sure that Everyone on your team is aligned around that because the patients will feel it. This is a delicate journey for many of them that they're going on. And if they don't feel like you are 100% on their side, you're not going to get over that barrier. And we don't get over it with every single patient, but we've learned so much through doing this tens of thousands of times that has helped us have that next set of conversations. Your second point on around true collaboration, 100% true from my experience that it's very hard to build that collaboration across different players in the system. But I never seen it as an issue of bad intent. It's often people are just way overtaxed and the systems don't talk and they are just doing their human best efforts to do the best they can with what's in front of them on that given day. And so that's where building integrations into their current workflows versus saying, hey, we've solved your problem problem for you. We've got another software system and they think, but we just spent a billion dollars rolling out Epic last year. We don't need another new system. We need something that can start with a referral in Epic. And if you're a payer, you built your own claim system and you have your own case manager system. You don't need yet another system that doesn't plug in. So we've very much taken a perspective of integrate into what's there from the beginning and use that as a way to help bridge across disparate systems versus trying to wait and see which one of those systems beats out all the others, because I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. One of your more publicized partnerships is with Highmark Health. Can you walk through the playbook that your team is using to implement this platform and really drive value for them? Yeah, it would be true for, so the Highmark story would be similar to Blue Cross of North Carolina or Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. It can differ when you start to look at different patient populations, but for any large commercial blue, the playbook is fairly similar. We, we go into a market and the first thing we do is aggregate the very disparate set of care options. So we already have some national care options, digital apps that are clinically validated, which is a very small subset of all behavioral health apps, telemedicine platforms that are national. And then we aggregate local supply. People like my wife, who's an LCSW here in Northern New Jersey, who works with children, she has her own private practice. It is one provider. And in both psychiatry and therapy, LCSWs, et cetera, it is very disaggregated. The average practice size is quite small and has not been rolled up the way, say, primary care has. So even pulling together that network and connecting to those people on a platform is, to begin with, very, very helpful because we now know where we can send patients patients for their given conditions. The next thing we do is build the infrastructure to meet the patients where they are. 
and that can uh, often start in primary care, working with private practices and large health systems. In Highmark's example, they have a large integrated partnership with Allegheny Health Network, which is a great way to get started. But the patients or the members for Highmark could show up in any one of the hospitals in that area. So we need to plug into the hospitals, plug into the ERs, plug into primary care, even plugging into subspecialties where patients might adopt somebody like a primary care physician who is not a primary care physician. So for example, if you have heart failure failure issues, your cardiologist might be your primary care physician that you're seeing most of the time. If you have cancer, your oncologist may be your primary care physician for a period of time. And our main goal is just to meet those patients where they are and help them move forward. So we're building those networks on the ground and then connecting the two together and making sure that we are actively getting their members the care they need. And then we'll go back and evaluate with them every six to 12 to 18 months, look at actual claims data and see what happened with the population that we helped them get to care versus those who looked exactly the same but didn't and we hadn't reached yet and the results are pretty compelling. At the beginning of our conversation, I love how you framed that, yes, the company has this incredible mission, you are patients first, but even in times of crisis, your number, your first response is almost, how do we take care of us, like our employees who are doing this work on behalf of everybody that we serve before looking towards the patients that we serve? So Pivoting a little bit into culture, I want to talk about how since 2014, obviously, the organization has grown significantly. And even within the last year of your leadership, one of the analogies you've used often, including at ZocDoc, is this feeling of building the plane as you're flying it. And how do you think about shaping culture to ground people during phases of crazy growth? And to be clear, we took care of our employees so that they were safe first, but we don't say think of ourselves first. I view it more as I training as a lifeguard. The first rule of lifeguarding is don't become a second victim. Like the first thing you need to do is make sure that things are stable. It's like put on your own mask on the plane before you put on the next one. So we wanted to make sure that our people were safe and taken care of so that they could then take care of patients. Very much the same way the leaders of health systems that I'm talking to, they're acutely concerned about their own employees right now because they know without those people, they can't take care of the patients who are coming in every day. From a, uh, how do you lead during periods of intense growth? It's messy. It's really just, this stage of growth is messy, but it's fun. I often, when I'm talking to the teams, will use not just the building a plane while you're flying an analogy, but think about our own life cycle as, as humans. And quartet is at the age where we've gotten past crawling and sitting up and sort of cruising like my toddlers did once upon a time. And now we're at a stage where it's appropriate to start walking and learning how to run. That means a different set of coordinating mechanisms, a different set of metrics, a different standard for process and rigor. And at any given time in the organization, there are areas that should be far more standardized than others, and others will catch up over time. But when we're doing something new, we want to flex our innovation muscle. When we figured out a problem, we want to figure out how do we start to do that more consistently, more efficiently with the highest possible quality so that we don't need superhuman effort from superheroes, which is basically what any early stage startup looks like. There are people like Sandy just magicking things in the background and we're saying it's technology, but you get to the point where you can actually do things at scale with technology and do it consistently. And that is when you can really start to scale. And that's the stage where our company is. So the 
the biggest challenge I think is the group of people who were here as early employees who had a lot of fun in that you know, wild west period of quartet. We need them, their institutional knowledge, their capabilities, but we also need them to operate in a way that is now very different from the company they joined, which when it was 10 people, 50 people, 100 people, we're now, we've doubled last year, we're roughly 300 people today. You cannot communicate, share information, look at data the way you did when you were 20 people. Everyone we're hiring now is joining at this stage, which it's easier for them because that's the company they joined. But for many people, this is not the company they joined. And someday we may be a thousand people and we may be in multiple countries. And when you get there, Quartet will look different yet still. Work that our people team is doing and the work that all of our leaders are doing are learning how to bring people along for that journey. And for them, I think it provides a ton of really exciting professional growth. For some people, they realize, hey, I really like one stage of a company better than another. And for those people, they are now in our alumni network and they're out there starting other exciting, very early stage companies the same way that you mentioned ZocDoc earlier. And I'm a proud alumnus, you're a proud alumnus, and there's a a lot of them out there in the New York health tech scene. Uh, And I think that's actually really healthy for a company too. My big challenge is how do we help the team and help people through those periods of transition, which aren't always easy. What is the biggest, I hate to call it tactic, but tactic you use to motivate those teams to hit those business goals, despite how the culture kind of shifts over time. I think one thing you do incredibly well as a leader is you don't simply brandish mission. Of course, it's incredibly important, but you introduce this healthy dose of realism that helps people kind of orient towards something that's more granular and achievable, especially in an uncertain, ambiguous environment of a growing startup. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily a tactic, but I agree with what you were saying about understanding what's achievable. I think the biggest challenge in any rapid growth company is how do you marry aspiration, which is how do we do things bold, differently, big, fast with reality? Like, can we actually do that thing, do it well and do it consistently? There's a a lot of compromise in between the two and you flex back and forth over time. So I think the biggest tactic to use in that case is your ears and just listen to people and understand because I will never be as deep on what my clients are facing as my customer success team is. And I will never be as deep on what the patients are dealing with on the phone every day as our care navigation team who is talking to them all day every day. And I will never be as deep on the behavioral health providers as our care options team is. But what I can do is talk to all of those teams, listen and understand where the common ground is and help them see each other's perspective and move forward. Unlocking that desire because everyone joined Quartet because they wanted to help with this mission. Unlocking that desire by making sure that you're removing barriers and keeping people on the same page when they're under extraordinary amounts of stress. That is the, I don't know if you'd call it a tactic, but to me, that is the approach that I've at least found works the best with large teams. I'd love to end the conversation with your personal leadership story outside of Quartet ZocDoc. I will say one ZocDoc anecdote that I love to share to illustrate how great of a leader I think you are. One of my favorite traditions when we worked together at ZocDoc was the annual holiday party. So like literally would organize chartered buses to transport like a hundred plus people from the health systems team over to your house in Jersey in the burbs and eat cookies and drink wine and be merry together. And I always looked forward to that every year because I felt like it illustrated how open of a leader you were. Like your house is literally open to people that work with you and you know, your commitment to building inclusive teams is really incredible. And I admire it a lot. I know a couple years ago, you started working with a leadership coach. 
Mm -hmm. would be curious to hear what prompted that and what has that journey looked like over time for you? Yeah, so I actually started my first leadership coach I had when I was at McKinsey. When you joined this sort of junior partnership group, they would put you together in a small peer group with a coach. I'll say that coach I've kept in touch with, even though he's not actively coaching me today, we talk several times a year. And that coaching group, the four of us, we still have a WhatsApp thread and we are talking throughout the coronavirus crisis. I have a second group that I joined that is sort of a professional networking group, but within that you have a a forum, 10 of you who meet once a month and you talk through your issues, whether they're personal, professional, or business. And what those both come down to is having a reliable place where you can go talk to people you trust in an open environment where you can be vulnerable because none of us have all the answers. That's harder to do when you're in the office because people are looking to you to have the answers and they want to know that the pilot knows where the plane is going. Usually the pilot does know where the plane is going, but the pilot also has to reevaluate the flight plan and question a whole bunch of things. So it's good to have a form and a format where you can do that. At Stanford, there was a class called Touchy Feely, which is the euphemism for a course called Interpersonal Dynamics. And if you talk to any GSB alumnus, they will say that was the single most valuable class they took because it was a place where they could learn more about themselves, ask hard questions, have somebody hold the mirror up and hold them accountable. And those are two outlets that I use to continue that kind of work because that's a lifelong journey. You never solve the problem of yourself. And so I think it's really helpful, especially as you advance in your career, because you get less feedback. You have more people who tell you how great you are because you are more people's boss, but you are not any better than you were 10 years ago, necessarily. So you need those places where you can get that tough feedback so you can keep growing. And this is probably true of you and all of your Wharton classmates. You guys have so much ambition and you will all be very successful. But as you are successful, you'll need to find new outlets to get that feedback to continue your growth or you'll plateau at some point. Great ending feedback. Always love our conversations and how open and vulnerable you are. Appreciated you taking the time to share your story with our listeners. Thank you for having me. It was really nice to catch up.